And there are many meaningful sayings in our culture regarding people's homes. Home is where the heart is. Or home sweet home. Or there's no place like home. Home is the starting place of love, hope, and dreams. Home is where love resides. Memories are created. Friends are always welcome. And laughter never ends. The ache for home lives in all of us. And here's one. The strength of a nation derives from the integrity of the home. But what happens if a person must leave their home, must leave their security, leave their safe haven, leave their shelter from the storms of life? And all people one day will have to leave their homes. I will, you will, all of us one day will have to leave these earthly homes of ours. And some will do it sooner than others. Some will do it for economic reasons, the loss of a job or, or a loss of a spouse's income. Some will do it because of widowhood or disease or the effects of aging or maybe the need to downsize or to move closer to loved ones who can help care for you. People in our culture regularly find themselves far from home. Well, today we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 29. And the Israelites, the southern kingdom, Judah, they're living as exiles in Babylon. And we are observing today a letter that the prophet Jeremiah, as directed by God, has sent from Jerusalem in 597 B.C. to the Jewish exiles in that first wave that were taken to Babylon. And this is a letter of hope. It's a letter of instruction. It's a letter of comfort. Yes, it's a letter of challenge. You could see that in the end of that letter. But it's really about comfort, hope, and instruction to people who have completely lost their way of life. They've lost their homes. They've lost their country. They've lost their place of worship. They've lost their land. They've lost their livelihoods, their lives. They've even lost loved ones because of the conflict with Babylon. And their lives have been completely turned upside down. You know, in the 22 years that I taught confirmation uh, here, and then the one year that I uh, taught it in, when Pastor Steve Cornelius left, and then Pastor Kerry and Pastor James had to go into youth ministry, so I stepped back into confirmation at that time. In those years that I taught that, when I did the lesson on the exiles, what I did to the students, unbeknown to them, is we would take them and start the class in the furnace room. In the old white little church in downtown Poplar that was in the very north end of the building in the basement, and it would be grungy in there, and, and a big water tank was in there because we didn't have a very good well and a shallow well there, and that would kick on from time to time. The boiler was in there, and it was dusty. There was no place to sit. And here, I would do the same thing, but our basement here is in the first edition that was put. It's right underneath the AV office and part of the sanctuary there. So we go down into the, into the basement there, and that's 14 foot down in the ground. So that's pretty deep down there. And uh, we would go down in there, and the, and the students would be awkward in there. They would just couldn't figure out what was going on. And well, why, why, would you, why are we doing this? And, and, and we'd... we'd spend five or ten minutes down there, I'd begin the lesson. Then we would come back out and we would debrief about what they experienced. And they would say, oh, it was noisy. And the smells were different. And there was no place to sit. And it was uncomfortable. And I, I didn't like it. And well, when the Israelites went to Babylon, the climate was different. The customs were different. The food was different. They'd lost freedom. And as I've mentioned in previous messages in this series, 
Prophets in the Old Testament were more foretellers than they were foretellers. But we tend to view prophets as predictors of the future, and that's partially correct. But really, they were more like canaries in the coal mine, warning of impending danger if course corrections were not made. And Jeremiah prophesied during the reign of the last four kings of Judah in the latter portion of the 7th century B.C. and the earlier portion of the 6th century B.C. And Jeremiah was from a community known or a tribe known as Ephraim. And remember Joseph, the next to youngest son of Jacob, of the 12 sons and brothers? Joseph, the one who went to Egypt and God used to deliver uh, the Israelites from, from certain death and famine that struck the region at that time? Uh, this is, the Ephraim was the, was the tribe from Joseph. And so this is the tribe he's from. And he was uh, sent to the capital city. Jeremiah was sent to the holy city, the seat of the government, the location of the temple. He was sent to Jerusalem. And prophesying there was a big deal because Jerusalem was the cultural center of Judah. And Jeremiah was an outsider. He was a country boy, if you will, and he was very young uh, when he began his ministry. It'd be like if God called some young, some teenager or some young adult from one of our communities here, Poplar or Wentworth or maybe Maple or Brule or one of these other surrounding communities here, one of these villages, sent that young person to Madison to speak truth into power, to address the moral and the ethical and the spiritual declines and religious failures that were going on in that place that are impacting our entire state. That's what it was like. And ancient Judah was a tiny kingdom. It was smaller than the state of New Hampshire, smaller than the state of Vermont, and it was sandwiched between a number of larger kingdoms. To the south and to the west was the ever-present superpower Egypt. To the north and to the east was at first it was Assyria. And then the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. And by the time their captivity would end, it was the Persians who would take over for the Babylonians. And over the years, Israel, the tiny kingdom or the little engine that could, survived in part because of a series of treaties that they would make with their bigger neighbors. Well, when Jeremiah began his ministry, Judah was a vassal state of Assyria, whose capital capital was Nineveh. Today, it's known as Mosul in northern Iraq. And for years, Israel was a puppet state to Assyria, sending an annual tribute to them, basically sending heavy taxes to Assyria. And it was really protection money, like in some of our inner cities in, in our country where gangs or sometimes mobs historically have forced businesses to pay a little tribute to them for protection. And if they don't pay up, uh, you know, things are going to be rough for them. That, that's what was happening. Well, Assyria was eventually overthrown by Babylon. So the annual tribute was now being paid to Babylon. And Judah was the submissive puppy with its tail between its legs to Babylon. And this was the era of Jeremiah's ministry. Judah was being disciplined by God because of their unfaithfulness to him. And Judah also clashed with Babylon. So they ended up making an alliance with Egypt, pitting Egypt against Babylon, and they started paying tribute to Egypt and quit paying tribute to Babylon. And oh boy, that did not go over well. Nebuchadnezzar was ticked. 
as well as Babylon. So what we're looking at today in Jeremiah 29 is God's letter to the exiles living in a foreign land because of their sin against God. These are people who are trying to adjust to a world-class city. At that time, was nearly a quarter of a million people living in one city. And half of their folks are still back in Jerusalem. And they long to go back there. And why are we not there? And here's a little bit of their experience. Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4 describes it. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, there on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord? Well, in a foreign land. The prevailing wisdom at the time among the exiles was that the solution to their dilemma was to return to Jerusalem. It was to go back to the promised land. It was to go back to the temple, which hadn't been destroyed at this point. Ten years later, it's going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar because he wasn't happy that they quit paying their tribute. And so things are going to, going to amp up a little bit more. And we read about that in the end of verse, uh, verses 18 and 19 here in chapter 29. It was describing that, what was going to happen. Well, we happen to know from the end of the book of Jeremiah as well, in chapter 52, uh, that the number of exiles that were in Babylon at the time of this letter. The first wave there were in exiles, there were 3,023 Jews that were there. And it was customary, because it's a patriarchal culture, often only adult males were counted because they were heads of families in the Old Testament. So it's believed there were probably about 10,000 or so in that first wave in captivity. This brings us now to our text. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 3. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. This letter was sent from Jeremiah through a delegation to these remaining spiritual leaders uh, of Judah in exile in Babylon. And what I don't want you to remember, though, even though he's the messenger, he's the writer of the letter, this is clearly God's letter. If you noticed in the scripture reading in verse 4, it says, God says, and it introduces the first person, I, I, I. In verse 7, it says, I. In verse 8, it says, the Lord Almighty says. It says the same thing in verse 9. In verse 10, it says, the Lord says, and it also uses the first person pronoun, I. In verse 11, the first person pronoun, I, is used two times. God is saying this, I, I. Verse 12, I is used again. Verse 14, I is mentioned three times. I, I, I. And also declares the Lord is mentioned on two different occasions. In verse 16, it says what the Lord says. In verse 17, it says what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 17 and 18 use the first person pronoun three times. I, I, I. And verse 19 says declares the Lord two times. A person cannot possibly read Jeremiah chapter 29 and miss the clear message that this is God's letter to his covenant people Israel. This is God's word to them. And verse 4 says, this is what the Lord Almighty, 
The God of Israel says to those I carried, I carried. Earlier it said Nebuchadnezzar took him, but I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God is comforting his people and he's given instructions to them on how to live godly lives in difficult times. Does anybody here agree with me today that we need this today? That we need God's wisdom for living successful, godly lives in the challenging times and the difficult world we find ourselves living in right now. This prophetic word is for us today as well. And God is saying, you're going to be here for a while. Settle down. Build yourselves homes. Give your children in marriage. And of course, that's according to the law. So it's to other Jewish uh, uh, people. So it's to keep the remnant, faithful remnant alive. Give them in marriage. You're even going to have grandchildren here. Build homes. That means you're going to stay there for a while. Stay there for some time. And also, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. And peace there is the word shalom. And in the Old Testament, that means to be a fulfilled, you know, to have a fulfilled life. We can have fulfilled lives, even in secular, horrific, pagan cultures. They could do it in exile, and we can do the same thing here. We can have the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding. We can have God's shalom. That's what it's saying. Verses 8 and 9. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in the name I have, in my name. I've not sent them, declares the Lord. False prophets were saying to Judah, you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. In fact, let's look at what they were saying. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. In the fifth month of the same year, the, year, the fourth year er, early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who was from Gibeon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back you back to this place. All the articles of the uh, Lord's house and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took up to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah before the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. He said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and the exiles back to this place from Babylon. Nevertheless, listen to what I have to say in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disasters, and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and he broke it. And he said, before all the people, this is what the Lord says, in the same way I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. 
At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. After the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go and tell Hananiah, this is what the Lord says. You have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of iron. And this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of all these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. I will even give control him over the wild animals. Again, the common wisdom among all the exiles was that the solution to their plight was to return to Jerusalem, the land, the temple, the nations, their monarchy, the religious center. And so when Hananiah says this and word gets to the exiles that this is what was prophesied in the temple and, oh, this is all wonderful. It's only going to be two years. It's not going to be very long. Jeremiah in 29 verse 28, the prophetic message says, get ready to be in Babylon for the long haul. He sent a message to us in Babylon. It will be a long And you know, the challenge to all immigrants, to all aliens and all exiles, is how to live in a foreign country adapting enough to survive without losing one's own identity. And in this case, the Israelites worshipped Yahweh, and they found it difficult to hang on to their identity. They hung their harps on the poplar trees. We can't even worship. We can't even sing. Things are so terrible. You know, we know this was the case, too, from the book of Esther, which comes from the same time period. It's a few years later, but it's the same scenario. It's when the Persians took over from the Babylons, but there was still captivity. And Esther was actually not a Jewish name. It's a variant of the, of the name Ishtar, a Babylonian deity. And Mordecai, her uncle, who was the one who God used significantly to use Esther to end up saving the Jewish race, to save Israel, Mordecai also was not a Jewish name. That's a variant of Marduk, another Babylonian god. So it was hard for the Israelites to hang on to their faith being so far from home. Not unlike the challenge that many young college students face moving away from home and being pressured in the secular universities and even some so-called Christian universities to adopt to the ways of secularism and wander away from their faith. And gradually, many of them do slowly drift away. Well, there's something important for us to understand here. In the ancient world, gods were viewed geographically as being tied to a location. So this prophecy to the Israelites, that God, it's telling them, God doesn't just dwell in the promised land. He doesn't just dwell in Jerusalem or in the temple, but God is also in Babylon. And this was an important word for people, uh, the people of God. God is not tied to a location. The rest of the world can believe that about their gods, but our God, Yahweh, isn't bound by space or time. God is still with us right here in Babylon. And this is an important message for us today as well. With all of the cultural upheaval that we're going through right now, all the political tensions, I mean, we're a couple of weeks away from these, uh, these elections that are happening. It's crazy out there. And inflation and the absence of rule of law and the whole COVID debacle that we've been through for literally the last three years and the overall moral and spiritual decline of America. And then add into all of that any personal challenges that you might be facing maybe related to your own health or aging or to a loved one's medical condition. Maybe there's some family tensions that you're going through. Maybe you are unemployed or you are underemployed. God is still here. And 
the midst of all of this. Look at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. They were becoming more and more like the pagan nations around them. And we've already learned this in our sermon series about Judah's sins of worshiping false gods, worshiping Baal, the god of fertility with all its cultic prostitution. And this is why Judah was being disciplined in the first place. But something that we do not easily uh, recognize when we read the text, and we've heard this now twice read to us, and I'm certain most of us probably didn't even think along these lines at all. But do you know Israel had been in the promised land for 490 years at this point? And they were told in the instruction, in the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, that the land was supposed to receive a rest every seventh year, okay? And they thought, you know what? We can make more profit if we work the land and don't follow what the law says. You know, every seventh year we keep working land, we gain more profit that way. So they weren't following, especially after those early years, what the law taught. So just do a little math with me here. I'm not good at math, but I'm pretty good at mental math. What's seven times 70? They're in captivity in Babylon 70 years. Every seventh year, you add, you multiply seven times 70, you end up with what? 490 years. You see, God is telling them. He's letting them know, you know, that uh, I'm in control. And, and his instructions are going to be adhered to one way or another. And God says this too. But I've already marked my calendar. I already know when I'm coming back for you. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. In the business world, having a master plan is something that's very wise. Something that's very strategic. And personally, i got to tell you, I wish I would have had a better plan, a master plan, if you will, when we, uh, we built our house. We, we built our first house, and we had a very good designer, and he drew, drew up beautiful plans, and we even had plans for an addition down the road on the house. That was all great. And even where we put our garage, that stuff was all planned out well. But I come from a family uh, who loves to take saunas. And it's part of my Finnish heritage and tradition. And I was a black sheep in my family because I had two younger brothers, one who had had two saunas already. He had, had owned a first place, built a sauna, sold that place, and then a second place, built that one, and ended up with a third place with a sauna. And my other brother uh, had had three saunas by that point, and I'm in my 40s and I don't have a single sauna. So I end up build, going big or go home. So I built a 13 by 23 log sauna, all right? But the part about that that doesn't make the best sense in the world is I didn't think that I would ever end up building a pole shed down the road so I would have a tractor for plowing snow and a place to put trailer and some, some implements in there and those kinds of things. I didn't think about that. And I should have put that where the sauna is right off the driveway where you can drive in and out of. But I ended up putting it across the yard so I have to drive across my yard every time and sometimes it's wet. And I just didn't think big picture enough. But God says, I have the big picture in mind. I have the big picture in mind for Israel, and I have the big picture in mind for each one of you. And by the way, did the Israelites deserve a future? No. They had been such terrible idolaters. They had been so rebellious and disobedient, yet God had a long-range plan in mind to bless them. And God is way out in front of them. And doesn't that sound familiar? God's way out in front of us too, isn't it? What does Romans 5, 8 say? But God demonstrated his love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was out before us. 
Christ died before us. We were sinners, and Christ went before us and died. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. He was thinking in advance, going before us. Well, it says here in chapter 29, verses 12 through 14 of Jeremiah, then you will call on me. And come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You know, the story of the Bible is the account of seemingly dead ends. Abraham and his aged wife. Abraham's promised to be the father of a great nation, and they're beyond childbearing years, and they have no children. They're childless. Seems like pretty dead-end promise right there. And then you have David in the messianic line. We are told that, that David, the king, you know, the Messiah is going to come from that line of David. He's supposed to be the king, but he's running around the wilderness fleeing for his life. He's not even king, and he isn't even having children at the time. And how's this messianic line thing going to work when he's, you know, nearly getting killed from day to day? And prior to David even being there was a grandmother who was widowed, a woman named Ruth without a kinsman redeemer. And without that, there's going to be no offspring. There's going to be no descendants. And the Bible tells us that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. And from David to exile, there were how many generations? 14 generations. And from exile to Jesus, how many generations? 14 generations. And even this poor Christ child was born under the threat of death. And his parents and him have to flee with this young infant in the middle of the night to Egypt to even save his life. And then you have the ultimate betrayal, the crucifixion of Jesus at Golgotha. And for all intents and purposes, it seemed like the fulfillment of the messianic promise had come to an end. So with all of this in mind, what are we hearing from the prophet Jeremiah today? Number one, I believe that we are hearing that God is not done with us yet. Wherever you find yourself, seek that location's welfare. Bloom wherever you are planted. Are you not in the ideal job right now? Are you not doing something you really enjoy or are passionate about or that you're gifted and talented for? Make the best of it. Are your life circumstances not what you would choose? Man, I didn't want this. This is not the direction I wanted to go with. Make the best of it. Seize the day. Live for God wherever you are. Second thing I think we learned from Jeremiah here today is wherever you go in life, God is going to be with you. God's with us. He's there. If, if you're in trials, you're in hardships, the dis disappointments of life, maybe you're facing some rejections or heartache, the unbearable circumstances, or maybe just the great things in life that are happening for you. God is there. And he tells us in his word that I'll never leave you. 
I will never forsake you. Third thing I think we learned from Jeremiah is that this world is not our home. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says we're foreigners and exiles here. So we need to live godly lives in this pagan world. You know, in the Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, where it talks about the martyred heroes of the faith, it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. That's the heroes of our faith. They didn't belong here. They're foreigners. They're exiles. And verse 16 says, instead of longing for this earth, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And Hebrews 13, 14 says, for we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. And the fourth thing I believe that we learn from Jeremiah is we have a future hope. See, if you're in Christ Jesus, Jesus is going to come back and take you and take us with him to glory. Mark chapter 13, verse 17 says, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and, the, and to the ends of the heavens. You know, the final word of the Bible to us is that wherever you go or whatever happens to you, rest assured if you are in Christ Jesus of God's presence with you. God is with us at home. He's with us away from home. He's with us in life. He's with us in death. He's with us in life beyond death. God is with us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you again for this prophetic word. And uh, Lord, as we've been talking about loving you, we can easily see how the uh, Jews, those in Israel at the time of the southern kingdom, had wandered from you, had given their love and devotion to all kinds of other things. And all kinds of ungodly practices were happening as a result. And they ended up in exile. And it was tough, really tough to be there. And it made them long for the things of home, yearn for the things of home, things that they didn't really truly appreciate when they were there. And God, you're teaching us too that we're living in a foreign country. We're exiles here with a longing for our heavenly city. And it is important how we live. It's important that we seek the peace and prosperity of the land. It's important that we live God-honoring lives and are faithful and good witnesses and that we make the best of all the situations that you place us in because, God, ultimately, it's for your glory and for your honor. So I ask, God, that we truly would be people who love you, and that's what this world would recognize about us, that we love our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.